Good morning and welcome to Our American Heritage. I am Art Turner, the host of the program. Our American Heritage is a program where we explore in depth the American experience from its beginning through the present. And today we want to welcome back Dr. Mike Carpin. So Dr. Carpin, thank you for coming back and continuing to share with us. My absolute pleasure to be speaking with you again, Art. Well, thank you so much for coming again. And listeners, in our last program, Dr. Carpenter was talking about the best years of our lives, and he was just talking about the directors and their background and what they did to make their World War II films realistic as being in the theaters of operation. So, Dr. Carpenter, if you would pick it right back up where you left off, it'd give you as much time as possible. Sure. You know, it's kind of hard to, difficult for me to because I love this movie so much, like where to even start? Like, where do I begin? Because there's so much good stuff. So I had to make an editorial decision just going through my own remarks here that I, I could do a whole nother show on the production, the filming, the acting, the music, all of which are absolutely top notch. But this isn't a film class. You know, this is this is a history class. So I really want to get into why for the post-World War II period, this, this is such a, a, a not only a great film, but just a great snapshot of this era after World War II. So as I said before, the plot of the film is really simple. Three returning soldiers are coming back from different theaters of war. They all meet up because they're all from the same town. So the three soldiers are Fred who is played by Dana Andrews, who's, uh, what was he in later on? I think he was in Sunset Boulevard later on. Al, played by Frederick March, who's only one of like the biggest stars in Hollywood. Yes. I remember yeah. Frederick March from Casablanca and, and some of the other movies. And then Homer, who is a veteran of the Navy. They all meet up and they're flying back to the fictional Boone City, which is actually Cincinnati. If you watch the scenes in the beginning of the film, when they're flying over this Boone City, you can pick out sites in Cincinnati that, that they filmed here. So I'm going to lay out as much as I can without giving away the ending, because I don't want to ruin the movie for you if you haven't, you haven't seen it. So I'm going to try to do the best I can here. So Homer's character is a really interesting place to start. So Homer, the veteran of the Navy, he is portrayed by Harold Russell, who was an actual World War II veteran, and he was not a professional actor. So if he was not a professional actor, why was he cast? William Wyler saw him, and you can find this movie on YouTube if you hunt around. He was in an Army training film called Diary of a Sergeant, and Harold Russell had lost both of his hands in a training accident during the Second World War. I think the, a grenade exploded in his hand, if I remember correctly, during a training exercise. And so he lost both of his hands. And so in the place of his hands are these metal hooks. And so Weiler saw this training film, saw Harold Russell, originally had a character in mind that would be suffering basically from PTSD, saw Russell liked his presence on camera. There was just something natural about him that he saw and, and cast him in this movie as Homer. Um, and in fact, and he's really good for somebody who's not trained as a professional actor. In fact, uh, Weiler found out at one point that they had sent Harold Russell for acting lessons and he went nuts and, and stopped it right away uh, because uh. he really, he, he, there was just something so natural and so real about him that he didn't want to mess it up with any Hollywood film acting. And so this is the character of Homer. And it's actually, it's quite stunning. Uh, and showing this to high school students in the beginning of the film, 
you know, uh, Harold Russell Homer is, is sitting in the corner of this ATC building waiting for his plane and they need help carrying something and he doesn't get up. And the guy says, oh, what are you, tired soldier or something like that? And then the scene moves on. And then when they get their plane, they ask Homer to sign and Homer's metal hands come out. And that's the introduction to his disability. And I've had classroom school kids and I showed this movie a few times. They all just gasp when those when those hands come out, because really, if you think about it, 1946, 1947, what's the world like for disabled people Mm -hmm. at that time compared to today? And so like they they under they kind of understand that this is somebody who's going to be facing some significant challenges throughout his, his life. Now he can use them very well. There's, there's all kinds of things where he lights cigarettes and he signs his name and, you know, he does all those different kinds of things, but that's only, that's only part of the story. And so he gets home and obviously his parents are both delighted to see him. And they're also just shocked by the sight of his hands. Like his mother is this, this combination of joy and and tears at the same time because he's home but look at this injury and you can you can just kind of see that and he also has a fiance literally the girl next door like how often do we see that trope in in hollywood movies yes, and so yeah. he has this 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 girlfriend fiance from high school the high school sweetheart she's obviously delighted to see him but obviously homer is is fearful that his injuries are going to impact their relationship. Like she's expecting to get married and he, you can see he's very unsure about that. So that's Homer's story. And you'll see that one, you'll see that one develop throughout the, throughout the film. Um, Fred, the air force guy is the highest ranking and he's clearly the most decorated of all the three soldiers. In fact, towards the end of the film, his father reads a letter of commendation from general Doolittle attesting to his to his heroism in battle and at that at that point i had to stop and say to high school students okay who's general doolittle yes (laughs) and a lot lot of them didn't know unless you were really into the second world war and so you kind of had to explain jimmy doolittle and his raids and and all that stuff and i said a 1946 audience would know who general doolittle is yes you know by big time okay so he's the highest ranking i believe he is a captain He's got all these commendations. He's got his challenges. He is going from making, and I, I ran some of these numbers. He's going from making $400 a month in the army as an officer, which is about $5,700 today. So $5,700 a month, you're making that today. That's not bad. He goes back, and I think this is one of the really interesting dynamics of this film, is people are going back into an economy that is transitioning from wartime to peacetime. And so the job market is flooding. And here's Fred, all this rank, all these ribbons, all these accommodations. What are your skills? You're right. You're right. What do you do? What you were an officer. Did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? He can't find a job. And so he goes from $400 a month to his old job at a soda counter for $32.50 a week today, mm-hmm. which is not even today. That's not a lot of money. He's also married. He's one of those, you know, how many guys got married right before they shipped out? His wife is a party girl. She likes the nightlife. And you ain't getting much nightlife 
on thirty two fifty a week in in nineteen forty six. And so this is going to create some problems. And Fred is also clearly struggling with what we would today call PTSD. And I think this is really one of the things that was an eye opener for a lot of my students because it's just something that, I mean, we talk about it a lot today in the context of soldiers returning from more more modern theaters of battle, but I don't think it's something we we readily associate. But Fred is clearly struggling with flashbacks. There's a scene in the beginning of the film where he's asleep and he has a flashback in the middle of his of his sleep. Uh, the weight of these struggles carry all throughout the film. In fact, one of the most famous shots in this film, hands down, like I think about just from I'll, I'll segue into into film nerd here for a second. Um, towards the end of the film, Fred is wandering through a real graveyard of B-17s that were destined for scrap. And he's walking through and it's shot from up high. And so Fred is very little against all of these planes. And the symbolism is, is, is clear. I don't think you got to be a, I don't think you got to be an English major to, to pick up on that one. That you know what's happening with World War II is is weighing on him, and so Fred's going to have his struggles throughout the film. Now the last one is Al, who's the sergeant, played by Frederick March. If you look at his patches, he was in the Philippines during the Second World War. He's clearly the wealthiest of the three. He lives in a really swank apartment in the city, in Boone City, really nice apartment. And in fact, my Kids basically said, well, why isn't he living in a big house in the suburbs? And I said, because the suburbs didn't exist yet. People were living in cities. And that's why we had to, like, improve roads and methods of transportation and then suburbs developed. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay, wow, that kind of makes – like, when was your house built? wasn't built in the 1940s. And so, you know, it all just kind of comes together. He settles into the equivalent of a six-figure banking job. All's well, right? He's a drunk. He is the amount of booze that this guy puts away in this film is absolutely unbelievable. And it's one of the I I actually think it's kind of like. It's not like Homer or Fred, where there's like there's some kind of a clear trauma that occurred like Homer is 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 disabled. Fred is having flashbacks about specific people and specific events and things like that. I just think a lot of what these soldiers experienced, it was a society where that stuff wasn't talked about. And a lot of those guys just drank it off for the rest of their lives. And I don't mean to, I don't mean that flippantly. I don't mean that to denigrate. I don't mean to, it's just the, the reality of how a lot of people handled that trauma that they had gone through. And and you see that with Al. Now, um, he also has a daughter who catches the attention of Fred. Fred is still married. Kind of see where that one's going. But I'll, you know, watch the movie and how that yeah. develops. And so there's just so much going on here. It's unflinching in its look at the mental and the physical struggles faced by returning soldiers. In fact, John Houston, I talked about that. Five came back. John Houston made a movie after the Second World War called Let There Be Light, 
about soldiers dealing with psychological trauma and how the army was trying to retrain them and to to get them back to civilian life. And it's so the, the army basically suppressed it. That's something else that you can find on YouTube if if you're interested in seeing that, because it's it's very troubling and it's very clear. We could take a soldier from World War II and put them into any other generation in American history and, and find some of those similar struggles. And I would say that this is a time period, and I can speak on behalf of looking at my grandfather's papers from the Second World War. My grandfather had a nervous breakdown after four months in Europe from Normandy through the Battle of the Bulge. And he was diagnosed with neuropsychosis. And the paperwork basically said, well, once he gets back to civilian life, you know, he's going to be fine. And he he clearly struggled with that for the rest of his life. Yeah, I mean, yeah. my, my my mother said he hated snow for the rest of his life uh-huh. because of the because of the Ardennes. He didn't want Christmas trees in the house. Mm-hmm. He didn't want fresh Christmas trees in the house because the smell of the pine reminded him of the Ardennes. Mm hmm. And, and the Battle of the Bulge, she's like, believe me, when, when, when artificial Christmas trees became available, we were the first family on the block to have that tree because, and so, and I think it just wasn't, it just wasn't talked about. And so, and I, and I, and I think you see that. You also see that, you know, the, this country is definitely an economic transition. It's in political transition. You know, Al's son is, he's talking a lot about what he's learning in classes about the, the nuclear bomb and, you know, dad, were you at Hiroshima? Did you see Hiroshima? And, you know, this, this new nuclear world is, is being considered by people for the first time. You see the economic development and you also see the beginnings of the baby boom. And I think that this is like a critical, this is obviously a really important development here. There is a wedding at the end of this film. I'm not going to say who, but there is a wedding at the at the end of this film. And something else that's also very interesting is, you know, I guess we assume that like like World War II wasn't controversial domestically. It's like assuming that like the Civil War wasn't controversial domestically, yeah. which we which which we know not to be the case. And so we think, oh, well, you know, Hitler, Tojo, the Germans, the Japanese, Pearl Harbor, and everybody was was in on the effort and, and fully yada, yada, yada. Not the case at all. There's a really famous scene where Homer is sitting at Fred's soda counter and a guy basically says, oh, what happened to your hand, soldier? And and then basically gets into, isn't it a shame that you lost your hands fighting the wrong people? Oh, gee, wow. And Homer's like, Homer's like, what, what do you mean the wrong people? Like, how are the Germans and Japanese the wrong people? Oh, well, and this guy goes in. It, he's he's basically a crackpot. Like, he, he's the guy who's, you know, sitting in his basement today, you know, on the Internet too much, looking at conspiracy theories about different things. And he leans into this, you know, whole, you know, you know, we fought the wrong people in the Second World War. And it's like, what are you talking about? And my students, again, said, like, wait, wait, people really thought that? Like, people mm-hmm. really had that perspective about the Second World War? Absolutely. You know, yeah. very, very, very complex, very complex politics here. You so, know, this... Uh, without, go ahead, Arsh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was, uh, maybe you're going to address this. This movie is fairly recent after World War II, and so the war yeah. is still fresh in everybody's mind. Oh, yeah. How, it's, how it's, was this movie accepted by the American public? 
Well, I, I will tell you here. So it started filming somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 15 months after the end of the oh, Second World yeah. War. It's, it's released in 1946. And not only is it a critical success, it's a, a smashing critical success. It's also a fantastic commercial success. In fact, and I was actually, I didn't get the time yesterday, but I was going to look for it. If we adjusted for inflation, the top grossing movie of all time still is Gone with the Wind, 1939. If we, if we adjusted that for inflation, that's still the top grossing movie of all time. Maybe, I don't know, maybe one of the Avengers movies finally took it over. I don't know. The Best Years of Our Lives was the second highest grossing wow. film of all time behind Gone with the Wind. And I don't know at what point it was taken over, probably at some point in the 1950s. It is an extraordinary commercial success. Audiences eat this movie up because for all of the reasons that we've talked about here, it really it hits it hits home and it hits home in a really powerful way. But it's also a critical success. Now, I, I forget the exact number of nominations, but it is awarded seven Oscars wow. at the 1947 Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director for William Wyler, which was his second Best Director Oscar after Mrs. Miniver. Now, I'm going to bring it back to Harold Russell. There's kind of a, an interesting note of trivia about Harold Russell, who played Homer, the non-actor who was the real veteran of the Second World War. Russell was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for his role in the movie. And the Academy basically said, I forget who he was. He was up against some really, obviously, some really prominent actors. The Academy said, well, he's probably not going to win, but let's give him a special Oscar for his service, for his role in this movie, for bringing awareness, for all of these different kinds of things, wouldn't that be fantastic? So beginning of the awards ceremony, they, they give him this special Oscar. Everybody claps, you know. So later, they get to awarding Best Supporting Actor. Guess who wins? Harold Russell. Wow, that's so amazing. Russell, yeah. Russell, Russell, to this day, he's one of... And I think it's four or five non-actors who have won Best Supporting Oscars. I think Jennifer Hudson for Showgirls, Hong Noor for The Killing Fields, Harold Russell, and there's a couple others that I can't think of off the top of my head. And so he is to this day, and I might be wrong, but I think I had this right. I was looking around yesterday. He is the only actor ever to win two Oscars for the same role. Mm. Huh. And again, he sort of, he was involved, he didn't get into acting, he was involved with the American Legion, he, you know, he did a bunch of things, but, it, you know, it just, he was just kind of like a regular guy, but thrust into this very prominent role. And just, you know, again, in closing, like, it's just, if you haven't seen it, it's definitely around on cable, check Turner Classic Movies, you could probably rent it from Amazon, it is just so worth it. I mean, top to bottom, hands down, a not just not only a fantastically well acted, well composed, uh, all, all of those things checks all the boxes, but also I think a really just a stunningly powerful primary source about this time period in American history. I still kids come back who I taught five six years ago. 
And they'll say to me, oh, I, I saw that on TV the other day. And I, I sat down and watched it again. Oh, that movie was so good. Oh, I, this part. And oh, and this thing was going, you know, it's one of those, it's one of those things that really sticks with you. So if, if you haven't, it's got to be a must-see on your list. Yeah. And, and I was just thinking of all these years later where this film was made fresh after World War II with all the tragedy that World War II brought mm-hmm. our country and our soldiers, you know, years later in the 90s, where now it seems like Hollywood began to romanticize, particularly World War II again, with movies mm-hmm. like, you know, like uh, Pearl Harbor. Yes. Yeah, and so I think it's just, I think World War II is just one of those that's just for, you know, and even like you, you could file like Band of Brothers and, and different types of things like that, that there is, you know, there is that, and, and deservedly so, uh, you know, there is that aura around the Second World War, but there's also all those guys came home at a certain point and they weren't professional soldiers and they went back to a new world and to civilian life. And for some, it was it was very difficult. And I think that's a, a fairly constant theme that we see throughout American history. Yeah. And Dr. Carpen, I know personally, my father was in the Philippines in World War II and, and got shell shock that he never mm-hmm. told anybody about except my mother because he was so embarrassed. And then when my father, yeah. uh, when my father was dying, I remember his last words to me were, don't feel bad for me because my nightmares are finally over. And, yeah, and, it's, you know, that's that's very powerful. And I think that's a very, you know, and it just, we, we see that in, in all eras. And I think that's, I think that's a, something that this film definitely touches upon. And I think it's one of those things that as we, it really wasn't until, and I, and I know this because my daughter just did a National History Day project on it, but it wasn't until 1980, that post-traumatic stress disorder was identified in, in the, and it really wasn't until the mid 1970s and Vietnam soldiers coming back that the long-term effects of these, of these traumatic experiences were finally fully understood. And so it just, you know, within that context, it's just something that makes it very powerful. With a few seconds that we have left, is there other Hollywood films that you would recommend to our listeners and students to to look at or to watch in any time in American history? I would say, you know, if I'll I'll go with with my close second, the film that I almost discussed in the place of the best years of our lives, and that's the original version of The Manchurian Candidate from 1961. I think between that and Doctor Strangelove, if you want to get that fear for kind of like where we were during the Cold War. I, I just think like those, I mean, the Manchurian Candidate is just, uh, you know, talk about a movie that had high school students on the edge of their seats. Like yes. that is just another uh, absolutely fantastic movie. And if you just that, just that, I don't know, the, the somewhat paranoia of that, of that era, justifiably so in some ways, I think that that if you're looking for a snapshot in time and a and a context, I think that movie is just spectacular. Another one, if you haven't seen it, definitely one to add to the list. But after 
after you've seen the best years of our lives. Yes. So, well, we want to thank you for sharing with us because I know oftentimes, Dr. Carpin, uh, we social studies teachers are accused of that's all we do is show films. And I know <laughs> and I know from walking past your class for so many years that that's not the case and that how you use films as a powerful tool to help educate our, our, our kids for the future. So thank yeah. you for sharing with us and encouraging us to, to go and watch the best years of our lives. So thank you for coming. It is always a pleasure to talk with you, Arch. Thank you so much for coming. And we weren't going to have you back because there's a couple other topics that I would like you to discuss with our listeners. So I'll talk to you about those personally. This is 1180 sure AM. Back at some point. I, I know you will. Thank you. This is 1180 AM WFYL, working for your liberty. <laughs>